0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, and our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up, we'll be looking at the new GP contract for 2022 23, which will be imposed on practices after talks between NHS England and the BMA broke down. We'll be discussing what's in the deal and how GPs have reacted to it. We'll also take a look at a new report from the Think Tank Policy Exchange, which recommends that the GMS contract should be scrapped within a decade, with GPs becoming predominantly salaried within large-scale providers. What's of particular interest is that this report's recommendations have been endorsed by Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid. We'll be discussing the findings of some new research into the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, which warns the multi-million pound initiative is at risk of failure, And finally, we'll be taking a look at the response of UK doctors to the horrific war in Ukraine. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up today, details of the GP contract for 2022-23 were announced last week. The details were a bit of a surprise because it seems as though it's full steam ahead with year four of the five-year deal, despite the pandemic. There's little recognition of the additional pressure practices are under as a result of the last couple of years and the NHS backlog. It also emerged that the contract is being imposed on practice after talks between NHS England and the BMA broke down. We'll come on to the what's in the contract in a bit. But Nick, what do we know about what happened with the talks between the BMA and NHS England, why they broke down and what it all means?
1: So t- talks actually reached a stalemate some time ago in mid-February, according to the BMA. Uh, The the BMA says they came to that point because NHS England was refusing to consider a contract update that would have a meaningful impact on patient care. And and some of the points that the BMA was pushing for uh, were extra funding to cover the cost of the increased national insurance contributions that kick in from April. They also wanted flexibility for primary care networks to use funding from the additional roles reimbursement scheme to hire staff they actually need rather than sticking to the prescriptive list of roles they can currently hire. And they wanted a funded pandemic recovery plan for primary care that matches the emphasis placed on COVID recovery in hospitals. The the BMA says it met with Sajid Javid, the health and social care secretary, after this impasse was reached. But the upshot of that seems to have been that a package of contract changes was simply imposed soon afterwards anyway. The the BMA's GP committee passed a vote of no confidence in NHS England less than a year ago. And I think it's a measure of how bad that relationship still is, that according to the BMA, they were only told about the imposed changes a matter of hours before they were sent to the profession by NHS England. In terms of what it all means, we'll we'll come on to the nuts and bolts of what's in the imposed contract package shortly. But ultimately, the BMA says general practice needed an emergency rescue package, and this is nothing of the sort. One of the key demands from the BMA, as I mentioned, was for uh, funding to cover employers' costs linked to the rise in national insurance from April National insurance is is set to rise by 1.25 percentage points from April. This is the health and social care levy the government's brought in to fund extra investment in health and social care services over the next three years. But GP practices will have to pay increased employer contributions as well as partners having to pay extra national insurance themselves. And we reported last year that this could mean a financial hit of around £15,000 for an average practice. The the BMA has said that the government's failure to support GPs by covering this extra cost means that a tax aimed at funding the NHS has become a tax on the NHS itself.
0: It's understandable why the BMA is not happy with what we've ended up with. I mean, Luke, the most contentious parts of the deal itself, you know, what practices are going to have to do... Seem to be the additional requirements expected from them under the PCN enhanced service, which is where much of the bigger changes are happening. One area that's affected by the contract is changes to access and extended hours. What's happening there?
2: Yeah. So, um, as promised here, are I guess the nuts and bolts of the deal. So, as you mentioned, uh, one of the main planks of the 2022-23 contract um, is a range of requirements that target access to general practice appointments. Um, so, the changes are geared towards improving the offer currently available to patients and very much reflect a move by their government and its ambitions um, of delivering sort of 50 million extra uh, appointments per year by 2024-25. 20, Actually, most people will know, but up until now, there have been a couple of ways in which GPs have received funding for extended access services within PCN. So one stream has come via CCG's and another um, which has come through the network um, contract DES. But the changes in the contract mean that the funding that's paid via CCGs or that was paid via CCGs will be combined with the extended access funding under the DES um, in a sort of pooling of these two separate streams. The idea behind this uh, move, uh, NHS England says, is to provide a nationally consistent access offer and to remove variability across the country and to improve patient understanding of the service. So as part of this, PCNs will be expected to provide bookable appointments between 6.30pm to 8pm weekday evenings and then 9am to 5pm on Saturdays, um, which will become network standard hours from the 1st of October. PCNs will be expected to provide a minimum of sixty minutes of appointments per one thousand PCN-adjusted patients per week during these hours, um, and all of this must be delivered via a mixture of appointment styles, so that's sort of face-to-face as well as remote consultations. Um, the contract also specifies that PCNs must use the full multidisciplinary team to deliver these appointments. Um, however, NHS England has said that PCNs may be able to provide some of the required hours outside of the Standard Times um, if it would be better um, to meet patient need and it's agreed. And very finally, I guess on this point, is that um, PCNs will uh, need to have submitted their plans on, um, on access to commissioners by the end of August. I've had sort of brief conversations with GPs about this already and a few of them I've spoken to have sort of highlighted issues with it, um, saying that they need more detail around the plans, particularly the clarification on um, what the NHS uh, means by routine services. So what does that involve exactly? And they've also said that uh, opening for additional hours. The issue is that this service is going to be run by the same staff members who are already saying they're exhausted by the Monday uh, to Friday, nine to five, the same teams. So they've made the point that there's only a finite pool of staff to deploy and to run this. Um, so once again, GPs and the teams feel like more work is being piled on top of them.
0: I was talking to someone earlier today actually about this and they were saying, very similar to what you've heard from from people, that they are going to find it very difficult. Not so much the Saturday. I mean, I think initially we thought the Saturday thing might be problematic, but more the evenings. And they were talking about trying to find staff to work those additional hours will be really very very difficult and they also sort of suggested to me that it might actually mean cutting back on services in the day so that they can make the staff work the evening shifts and also I think for some PCNs particularly those that have got a large number of practices in them trying to coordinate running services across all these extra hours um, across multiple practices and and setting up some kind of rotor is, is a real challenge and it's a challenge that will probably inevitably fall to clinical directors many of whom are actually clinicians and arguably could be better use of their time seeing patients. But um, yeah, I think there obviously will be some more guidance on this, I'm sure. And and we'll have to wait and see what's in the actual detail. Um, I mean, on access, there's also changing the GP contract itself. So the current contract measure that means practices must make 25% of their appointments available to be booked online is going to be replaced with a new requirement. That means practices need to make sure all appointments that don't require triage, can be booked online, in person or on the phone. Again, there's more guidance coming about that. And there are some new targets on access. So there's a lot on access in the contract for for next year. Um, There's new targets in the Investment and Impact Fund or the IIF, which rewards PCNs for performance against a range of targets. So on access, there are indicators that relate to how practices are performing in the GP patient survey for networks to offer a certain number of online consultations and also, uh, which maybe is a bit controversial, the percentage of people who are able to book an appointment within two weeks with networks needing to ensure 98% of patients can book an appointment within that timeframe to get the full money. Luke, on the IIF, in the last news podcast, we spoke about GPC chair Farah Jamil speaking out against the IIF and concerns about the amount of work people are going to have to do to get the funding. You know, she called it misaligned and overly bureaucratic and said it would undermine GP's ability to deliver quality patient care. The IIF is part of the five-year contract, but was supposed to start in 2020. But effectively, no one's done anything on it because it's been suspended during the pandemic. But from this April, it's going to start in full and there's a lot in it, isn't there?
2: Yeah, NHS England uh, has confirmed that the IIF will start as planned for 2022-23 and the fund is based around five objectives. So yeah, just to refresh people on those five objectives, that um, they include tackling uh, health inequalities, better patient outcomes in the community, improved patient access, patient medications and creating a greener NHS. Um, however, it was confirmed that there will be three additional indicators focused on prescribing direct oral anticoagulants um, and fit testing uh, will also be introduced, and these changes mean that there will be further 34.6 million, uh, which is being added to to the fund now. Of course, like the quaff, the IAF is voluntary. Practices don't necessarily have to do this work, but it has a lot of funding attached to it. Um, so naturally, practices will want or perhaps need to carry out this work um, and and it's not attached to core funding, which I guess is, is something that people have picked up on as a potential issue. Um, alongside the IAF, expanding PCN specs um, will also be something that networks will be occupied with um, in 2022-23. So in the contract, NHS England, says the anticipatory care and personalised care services will be introduced uh, in a phased approach from April 2022, so that's this year, but there will, however, be a limited expansion of the cardiovascular disease prevention and diagnosis service. Um, Early cancer diagnosis service requirements will be streamlined and focused in 2022-23. In response to clinicians' feedback, NHS England have said, and they also say that this means it will be simpler and cleaner um, for networks. And finally, Networks will get an additional year to implement digitally enabled personalised care and support planning for care home residents.
0: It all seems like quite a lot of additional work for Networks. And as Nick mentioned earlier, the BMA was clearly hoping for additional support for practices to help them tackle the existing work but what they seem to have ended up with is something that simply adds more work to a system that's really struggling. I mean, what's been the general reaction from GPs and LMC's?
2: Yeah, so as we sort of touched on, the main reaction is about the workload and that it seems like a a lot more work, given that NHS England have said that these are sort of minimal... Changes, um, there's also worries about how people are going to organise staff to, to deliver this. I guess one of the best reactions that stood out for me was um, one GP on Twitter saying, well, questioning whether policy leaders were deliberately trying to destroy general practice because that's what it, it seems like. Um, some have said that the changes could force more doctors to seriously consider quitting the profession together, including partners, um, and others have said that it could further exacerbate the uh, NHS crisis and widen the door to privatisation. They've also said that the contract shows the concerns and um, thoughts of GPs are not being listened to, which uh, must be really frustrating for for teams who have called out for for help or have been calling out for help for quite some time, and this doesn't look like it's going to be um, an aid to them.
1: I think the the profession and representative organisations are still digesting the full significance of the imposed contract changes, and we'll see more detail on how they'll respond in the coming days and weeks. It's quite likely, I think, that we'll see analysis of the full cost and workload implications for practices from LMC's and others soon, for example. Um, but we've already heard calls for GP leaders to seek legal advice over the contract imposition and even for industrial action. Uh, in the past, when contract changes have been imposed, we've seen special LMC's conferences. Uh, you know, th- These have come at, at times of, of crisis for the profession, whether it's to do with contract changes or, or some other issues. Uh, and and you could argue there's a case for one now, again, to give the BMA's GP committee uh, a clear steer on how it should respond. Um, we know from an indicative ballot last November by the BMA that more than half of practices are prepared to take steps such as withdrawing from primary care networks and that even more would support other forms of non-compliance with rules. Um, The the BMA has uh, since then been accused of kicking the prospect of industrial action into the long grass by failing to move forward to a formal ballot. But there have been calls for industrial action again to be considered now. Um, There was a joint statement from the GP Survival and Doctors Association UK groups, and and that calls for the decision to impose the contract to be legally tested. Uh, and, And they said the unilateral termination of talks with the BMA shows a total lack of respect for practice teams that have worked so hard through the pandemic. But the chair of GP Survival also told me that he would support a formal ballot on industrial action. LMC's, you know, like I said, are still assessing the contract and are likely to say more soon. But as an example of the kind of thing they're saying, Cambridge LMC wrote in its latest newsletter that there had been no willingness from government or NHS England to address any single one of the key issues for GPs that have arisen during the past two years of the pandemic. Uh, and that would suggest that there's an appetite within general practice to push back.
0: it would definitely be interesting to see what's coming out over the next uh, couple of weeks. But um, you can find all the details of this year's GP contract, including analysis and reaction on a dedicated area of our website at gponline.com forward slash GP contract. Moving on, there was also some indication about the direction of travel the current health and social care secretary, Sajid Javid, would like the GP contract to take in the longer term. Last week, a conservative think tank, the Policy Exchange, published a report into the future of general practice, which recommended that the GMS contract be scrapped within a decade, with GPs moving to a predominantly salaried service. What's interesting about this particular report is that Mr Javid wrote the foreword and endorsed its recommendations. Nick, what did the report actually have to say?
1: The report is actually billed as a rescue package for general practice. It it highlights the pressure GPs are under from factors such as a shortage of staff and heavy demand. uh, And it argues that these unsustainable pressures mean reform is essential. It also calls for an overhaul of GP premises for better systems to monitor and report workload in primary care and a review of incentive systems, including QOF. And up to a point, you might say so far so good. These are all things that many GPs would agree with. But the reforms the report proposes to address some of these problems are more controversial. It it calls for the GMS contract to be phased out by the end of the decade and for a wholesale shift to providing primary care at scale from as soon as 2024 when the current five-year contract comes to an end. Uh, And under this plan, GPs, as you mentioned, would be predominantly salaried or contracted by large-scale providers such as hospital trusts, potentially by what the report calls large-scale primary care operators. The transition would happen through what's called vertical integration, uh, primary care being subsumed by hospitals, as has happened notably in Wolverhampton, where 10 or so practices have merged with a local hospital trust. And there's also the possibility of horizontal integration, primary care providers, including but not limited to GP practices, coming together to form larger provider blocks.
0: I mean, obviously, this is a you know a think tank report, but it's pretty significant given that um, Sajid Javid wrote the forward and effectively endorsed what it's saying, isn't it? What have the BMA and other groups had to say about it?
1: It's clearly significant, not least because the general thrust of the report is very much in line with comments from Sajid Javid earlier this year about nationalising general practice. Those comments look very much like a preview of what this report spells out. And in his foreword, the health and social care secretary says proposals it sets out are a pragmatic contribution to the vital debate on the future of the NHS. Um, and, and, and with the, the current health secretary, who's made clear he's intent on a major overhaul of the health service, contributing to a report like this with such specific proposals about NHS reform, it definitely can't be dismissed as the government just flying another policy kite. Uh, I think some of the language in the report is interesting, too, in terms of how it characterises general practice. It it talks about dissatisfaction with general practice growing. We know from the most recent GP patient satisfaction survey that overall satisfaction with general practice is at a three-year high, despite parts of the media and politicians spreading misinformation about access to -to face-to-face access over the uh, past year. And the report also makes the claim that the partnership model of general practice is in terminal decline. But the timing for this comment is 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 interesting. N- numbers of GP partners in England are way down, of course, on where they were five or six years ago. And we've reported on that um, regularly. But there is a programme currently offering golden hellos to new partners. And we reported earlier this year that it actually seems to be working. Uh, Around 1,300 new partners have come into the profession since mid-2020, and the drop in total numbers of partners seems to have slowed, uh, and slowed significantly. So the question is, could it even be reversed with the right incentives and support for general practice? The the RCGP, for its part, has warned that policymakers need to recognise the exceptional benefits and cost-effectiveness of the current model of general practice, uh, and that... Massive changes like this would need to be thoroughly evaluated to find out how they affect efficiency, workload, patient safety and the relationship between GPs and patients. Uh, the BMA acknowledged the factors that have prompted calls for change, uh, but warned that none of them justify taking a sledgehammer to the partnership model. And. In terms of how significant this is, though, I think I'm going to come back to Cambridgeshire LMC again uh, because I think they summed it up best. They they called the proposal in this report an existential threat to general practice as we know it, not simply the partnership model, but our very philosophy of continuity of care, holistic community-based medicine. And they said that this threat's been on the radar for years but now it's out there in black and white endorsed by the very top of the department of health
0: yeah i mean it's it's pretty pretty grim really i mean i do find it i do find it quite hard to see though as we talked about on the podcast i think last time about how you would get the same value for money out of a salaried service as they currently get as the nhs currently gets from gps working in the way that they work as independent contractors I mean, Luke, you spoke to some GPs recently about this whole idea of nationalisation and GPs being employed by hospitals, which is very much in the same vein as what's being said in, in this report that Nick's explained. What's the general feeling from doctors about that approach?
2: So I think that's fair to say the majority of GPs aren't in favour of, um, of these proposals or what's being proposed. Um, so the GPs I spoke to roughly, they all pretty much came up with the same three or four key reasons why nationalising uh, the general practice service shouldn't go ahead. So the first of those is something that we've just touched on. It's about the loss of working hours to the profession. Um, so partners told me that if GPs were encouraged to become salaries, um, they would probably work their hours and then go home. And it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they're all rushing off to sort of the golf course or anything. Any of those myths. Um, they basically they explained to me that if you got rid of the independent contractor model, the running of practices ceases to be sort of a personal mission. I guess there's no ownership um, or a greater sense of responsibility in there, and and there's no incentive for staying late to finish off work. Whereas when they're in partnerships, GPs told me that effectively uh, the buck stops with them and they are the only ones who are going to ensure that the work is done and that patients are cared for and everything is running smoothly. So to summarise that point, um, all those extra hours that GPs put in and have done sort of through the pandemic, of course we've seen that, um, a large chunk of that goodwill will simply be lost. Another fear um, around nationalisation is the concern around uh, continuity of care and quality patient care. GP's told me that under a nationalised system, they fear that patients will just be seen by whatever doctor is on duty, and they won't necessarily see the same clinician each time. They said that again, the feeling or this feeling of, I guess, owning practices or, or having ownership over over patients and populations will be lost. Now, there've been various studies in the past which have shown that seeing the same doctor um, will produce or more is more likely to produce better outcomes um, for patients, and people can also live longer. GPs also enjoy this aspect of the job, sort of getting to know patients and having a good rapport with them, which I think is sometimes lost. Um, so getting rid of this, um, which is something that I guess some people was the essence of being a family doctor, will again go. So to sum this all up, these proposals are another, another kick in the shins for GPs who feel like their feelings about policy are being ignored, um, with the government seemingly hell-bent on, um, on pushing through their own, um, their own policy.
0: One of the things that struck me about this report, and about what we've just been talking about about the contract imposition, and and you've both sort of touched on it really while we've been talking, is that the, the there doesn't seem to be any kind of feeling or impression that the the current um, health secretary and the Department of Health is actually listening to GPs about what they they want. I mean, Nick, you mentioned there about the, the BMA. They saw, obviously saw um, Sajid Javid after talks with the NHS England broke down and they must have put forward their position and explained what's going on. And I remember speaking to RCGP Chair Martin Marshall just ahead of the college's conference last year for the podcast. And he told me he'd had what he felt was a very constructive meeting with Sajid Javid. But then clearly a few weeks after that meeting, um, Javid failed to appear at the RCGP conference because he was announcing that punitive winter rescue package, another rescue package that was anything but a rescue package um, that did nothing to help address the problems facing general practice. And now we've got this report which suggests he's looking at massive wholesale overhaul of general practice. And, you know, no one's saying that there doesn't need to be changes. Of course, you know, clearly there does. But what he seems to want um, it's just not something that seems to be backed by really hardly anybody. None of the representative bodies and none of the GPs you've obviously spoken to, Luke. So, I mean, it, it just seems that he he doesn't seem to be willing to engage constructively with GPs, I think, what I'm trying to say there.
1: Yeah, I think it it is hard to argue that he's listening to GPs, that's for sure. I mean, er, earlier in the pandemic, when GPs were concerned about negative media coverage, about access to face-to-face appointments, fueling abuse from patients... Uh, Sajid Javid was accused of contributing to that when he said it was high time that practices gave face-to-face appointments to anyone who wanted one, despite that actually not being a requirement of the uh, the GP contract. Um, you know, he he also gave um, a, a policy speech this week on his plans for the health service, and he promised um, he promised major NHS reforms without giving any real detail of yeah. what those would involve. But rather than, uh, you know, the, the BMA, as we've just been talking about, was, was looking for an emergency rescue package, a rescue package that almost by definition would have to involve additional funding. The health secretary is talking about the, uh, the you know, NHS spending being on an unsustainable financial trajectory and saying that, you know, no new, no new money is, uh, is going to be available.
0: Right, we're sticking with the contract for the next topic we're going to discuss as well. We've talked about the additional roles reimbursement scheme several times on the podcast now. Just to recap, this is the multi-billion pound scheme aimed at bringing 26,000 additional healthcare staff into primary care by 2023-24. It provides funding for PCNs to employ staff like social prescribers, pharmacists and physiotherapists, among others. Last week saw the publication of a major report by the King's Fund into how the ARRS is getting on three years into the contract – this is an independent report that was commissioned and funded by the Department of Health. Luke, the report is really, really critical about the way the ARRS is being implemented. I think it's fair to say the authors think that, that it's a good idea, but it's being really let down by the way it has been rolled out. Can you explain a bit about some of the problems the report found?
2: Yeah, so as you say, the report was specifically looking at how staff hired through the um, the recruitment scheme have fared since, since entering their roles. And um, although we've heard from clinical directors in the past about how valuable these staff have been uh, through the pandemic, and um, we've seen evidence of good work, the report identified Identifies a number of issues. It really is sort of quite an exhaustive list. Um, so, the standout conclusion from the report is that new recruits aren't, are, are just not being implemented and integrated into primary care teams effectively. The report says that there is a real risk and it could fail to have the intended impact. So, if we cast our mind back to 2019, these 26,000 additional staff um, that were promised to general practice were supposed to come in and reduce pressure on surgeries and help teams improve um, population health. But over two and a half years now into the scheme, um, the report said that practices struggled to integrate these staff and and even know what to do with them in, in some circumstances. And I think a lot of a lot of that is, is through no fault of GPs themselves. They're they're all incredibly busy at the moment, but they just don't have the time um, to integrate the staff uh, and to spend the hours with them to supervise them, um, as should be should be happening. Um, and this is leaving those staff that are coming in feeling isolated and lonely. The report said. But again, how many I mean, how many times have we heard from CDs over the past couple of years that a lack of funding for supervision um, and a lack of time for it was affecting their ability to manage staff is been countless so this is this isn't a surprise the paper also said um that there was common commonly disagreement over whether the additional staff um was supposed to be delivering on pcn contract works or to perform core general practice um activities and it suggested that an overload of guidance on practices and how they should deploy these staff was potentially confusing pcns further and, and clinical directors um in how to get the best out of their their new employees um, and finally, another interesting point that I think is quite um, important to mention is that the report suggested general practice hadn't considered how it itself might um, have to change to be able to get the best out of, of staff and how they could then support general practice. So so overall, as we've said, it's quite a striking report, but quite honestly, as I've said, the warning signs um, have been there uh, around a lack of supervision and, and trouble integrating staff. Um, and again, it just goes to show that Getting these staff is half the job, um, so we should always take official recruitment numbers with a pinch of salt when they, when they come out.
0: I spoke to one of the report's authors, Becky Baird, on the podcast in January about how PCNs are getting on and where things might be heading, and we did discuss the ARRS as part of that, and, and she did talk about a lot of the themes that came up in that report. So if you want to listen to more on that, it's episode two of this series, and it's called What Does the Future Hold for Primary Care Networks? And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Finally today, we don't have a good news spot, but we just wanted to mention the terrible situation in Ukraine following the Russian invasion a fortnight ago. Most of us will have found the reports, pictures and videos coming out of Ukraine incredibly distressing. And I know I personally have found it very upsetting. In situations like this, it can be really difficult to know what you can do on an individual level to help or at least feel like you're taking some sort of positive steps. But there are people out there who are really making a difference. And we wanted to highlight the work of a group of UK doctors Medical Aid Ukraine is a newly formed group of doctors from across the country who are collecting donations from hospitals, GP surgeries and drug companies to take to the Poland-Ukraine border to support refugees. The group is linked to the Ukrainian Medical Association of the UK and has been set up by its president, Dr. Roman Craig, who is an NHS consultant in pain management.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, so Dr Craig, who, um, as you say, is a specialist at UCL Hospital, he's um, he's actually going to cross the border himself and go and work in a field hospital for a period of time, which is in, well, it's tremendously brave stuff. And his wife, Giovanna Russo, a London GP, will also stay in Poland to help out um, in a refugee camp. So that's just one of the examples that we've seen of medics getting involved with efforts to help the Ukraine um, as the invasion continues, and I know the, I know I saw another tweet that was from North Staffordshire um, with GPs collecting um, vital supplies.
0: Medical aid Ukraine are actually there's a convoy leaving from London of trucks and cars with all this equipment that they've collected, and it's travelling across Europe. It's travelling across Germany and into Poland, and um, they're calling on doctors from across Europe to come and add bits and pieces that they can supply um, to the convoy. We'll put a link to the Ukrainian Medical Association's Facebook page in the description for this show because there are updates about the work that they are doing on there. Um, meanwhile, Médecins Sans Frontières is also scaling up its emergency response and as well as in Ukraine, it has teams in neighbouring countries, Poland, Moldova, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia, as well as teams in Russia and Belarus. And we'll put a link to information from MSF in the notes for this episode as well. And finally, um, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, which represents all of the UK's Royal Medical Colleges and faculties, has issued a statement asking members of the medical profession to donate to the Red Cross appeal if they are able to do so as an expression of support for the people of Ukraine. The AOMRC has made a donation to the appeal and we've put a link to that in the description as well. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke. I'm back next week when I'll be talking to former RCGP Chair Professor Dame Helen Stokes-Lampard. Dave Helen is now Chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and also Chair of the National Academy of Social Prescribing. And I'll be speaking to her about how to make a success of social prescribing, general practice's role in social prescribing, as well as some of the work of the AOMRC. Please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com.